Let's turn to the book of Acts, where we have just begun our studies through this book. When you say the name Judas, that evokes feelings from anyone with even a whiff of Bible knowledge, and even people who don't know very much of the Bible know the idea of a Judas kiss is an act of betrayal of a friend. Well, the passage before us today closes the record on the tragic life of Judas Iscariot. And when we finish this chapter, which we will today, Lord willing, that makes us ready for the next enormous step in God's plan. Now, we know that Jesus called Judas Iscariot to follow him. There were hundreds following him, all disciples. And remember, he spent a whole night in prayer, and then in the morning he announced the 13 who were going to be, or the 12 rather, who were going to be the original apostles. And that was the same day that he preached the Sermon on the Mount. It was a huge day in his ministry, and Judas was one of those 12. But from the beginning, Judas was a fake disciple. He was a phony. Only he and Jesus knew it. And it was all in the plan of God. Jesus knew Judas was going to betray him, him, but Judas, through those three plus years they were together, Judas was so good at his hypocrisy, no one else suspected him. That is a world-class hypocrite. John chapter 13, we read this in verses 21 and 22 not long ago. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The reference to the you is the twelve that were with him at that Passover meal. And the disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. They actually suspected themselves as much as they suspected Judas. They, I think, likely believed that the betrayal was going to be accidental, like one of them would would unintentionally do something that would tip off people to where Jesus was going to be so he could be arrested, because surely, they thought, none of us would betray our beloved Jesus. Well, John tells us what was going on that night. Skip down to verse 27 in John 13. After the morsel, part of the fellowship of the Passover meal, dip a morsel in the, in the bitter herbs and, and the sweet, or bitter and sweet stuff and, and share it with somebody. After the morsel that he gave to um, Judas, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. Well, you know how it played out. Judas did that horrible, satanic deed. Jesus protected the others from the arrest mob when they came to, uh, to get him, and Jesus voluntarily went to the cross. What Judas did next sets the stage for the passage that we will be uh, looking at 
this morning. But remember where we left off. Last Lord's Day, we finished at verse 11. Let's just remind ourselves what had happened just before our passage. Acts 1, 9 through 11. After he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Now immediately the book of Acts is going to continue with what needed to be done while they start waiting for Jesus' return. And more imminently, waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit. The rest of chapter 1 is a unit, and so we will look at it as a unit. And at last, we're going to, dis- to see the disciples, and specifically the apostles, but others as well, finally understanding, finally getting it. How often as we work through the Gospels do you see and you have to explain, well, they didn't understand yet. He said he was going to be betrayed. He said he was going to die. And they were just thinking about, no, he's going to bring the kingdom right now. Now they were catching on. He had just said to them, after the Holy Spirit comes, you will be my witnesses. And it seems like at last they're starting to think, we have a job to do. He's gone. He's coming back. Admittedly, they probably thought very soon but we have work to do. So we're going to work our way through the, uh, uh, the, the remainder of this chapter. And I have already gone to Amazon.com and ordered a new supply of the letter P to replace all of these that I'm using this morning. Here's an outline for you. The personnel, the problem, the prophecy, the plan, the proposal, the prayer, and the providence. First, we meet the personnel who was there. Acts one twelve. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, Mount of Olives, right across the, the Kidron Valley uh, overlooking the city of Jerusalem. They came down from the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. Now, what is a Sabbath day's journey? Well, it doesn't mean how far can you walk on Saturday, because you could walk a lot more than this, but it's about... 2,000 cubits, and a cubit is the length from your fingers to your elbow, roughly a foot and a half, or roughly a half mile is about 2,000 cubits. The reason for that specification of the distance is that comes from the understanding of Israel's encampments in the wilderness. Whenever they would move, come to a new place, set up the camp, the tabernacle was always in the middle. And the 12 tribes camped around it. And you can, you can see, and you can find probably in your study Bible, uh, a good portrayal of how that was. Well, the tents farthest out on the camp's perimeter were 2,000 cubits from the tabernacle in the center. So that was the longest distance that anyone in the wilderness in Israel had to walk if they were going to reach the tabernacle on the Sabbath. And they were not to work on that day, prohibitions of how much you can do. So that, that was where that Sabbath day's journey concept arose. So verse 13, when they had entered the city, 
they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Now notice, that's a very specific place. It's like, it's like everybody knew that. The upper room where they were staying. It just might be the same upper room where Jesus had that Passover meal with the disciples. The upper room. And it was not a tiny place because you can see who all was there. But here's the primary personnel. They went to the upper room where they were staying. That is Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. Now this is the fourth of four lists of the 12 original apostles in the New Testament. Now this one obviously doesn't include Judas Iscariot. And you know why? Because you see that in the rest of the, pas- rest of the passage. By the way, the other lists are in Matthew 10, Mark 3, and Luke 6. Now it's an interesting thing to compare the four lists, put them in four columns side by side, and you'll realize, well, they aren't always the same. Well, that's because they're, uh, the, the name can be written in one language or another. Um, they are not always in exactly the same order, but they are in the same groups. There was the inner circle of Peter, James, and John. And then there, there are other, the groups are always the, in the same order, but not the individuals. Now, the ones that might confuse you, Bartholomew is the same as Nathaniel, two different you know, versions of the name for the same guy. Matthew is also Levi. There are two Jameses. There's James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, one of the two sons of thunder. And then there's James, the son of Alphaeus. Uh, you can find in one list James the Canaanite and the other one, or, or, I'm sorry, Simon the Canaanite and then Simon the Zealot, same guy. He was from, uh, he was a Canaanite, origin, of fa- family origin anyway, but he was probably a member of the zealot party before he came to Christ, the ones that were more radical in their desire to put a king on the throne in Israel. Uh, James, the son of Alphaeus, is also called James the Less. He was five foot five. Uh, he was just exactly the right side, but obviously the other James was oversized. I could say his nickname was Scott, but I won't. <laughs> then there's another Judas that isn't Judas Iscariot, Judas the brother of James the Less, and he's also called <clears throat> Thaddeus. Thaddeus. So take out a piece of paper, close your Bibles, we'll have the quiz now, see if you know. Um, but th- they are the same ones. And we get to verse 14. These, these 12, 11, These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Now there's more personnel. Along with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. As I said, now they're showing signs of understanding and praying. It's a a big contrast to the last time we met this group, Jesus is chastising them. You couldn't stay a week while I go away and pray for a few minutes. And now they're having, instigating this prayer meeting. It's most likely that they were praying for the coming of the Holy Spirit, which they now understood was going to be very soon. And Jesus had repeatedly promised that. And now that He was no longer around, that likely 
would be their focus. When is that power going to come? When we will be His witnesses. And notice that their prayers were continual and they were with one mind. Now you're going to see in another verse or two, there were actually 120 people there. But among people we've already met coming through the Gospels, and remember Acts is the sequel to the Gospel of Luke, this group was not exclusive to the 11 apostles. There were some other people you've heard of. It included the women. That was kind of a a designation for a little group of women who had followed Jesus through His ministry and all the way to the cross and had been uh, the first ones to the tomb. That probably included the women, I should say, probably included at least Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Susanna. Those are the names that we know, and likely several others who had accompanied Jesus during His ministry and uh, played a very significant role. Notice that Luke also points attention to Jesus' mother, Mary, and His brothers. Now, of the Gospel writers... God used Luke to give the most detail about Mary. It's only recorded in Luke that that visit to her about the virgin birth and about her cousin Elizabeth and uh, her uh, about to give birth to uh, John the Baptist. So this is uh, Luke wrapping up, if you will, that story. And he shows here that, that Mary continued with the apostles and the other believers even to and through and beyond Jesus' ascension. We talked about how how a sword would pierce her heart. Can you imagine watching your son crucified and knowing he is sinless? And his brothers here are mentioned again. Uh, They are listed in Matthew 13 and in Mark 6. um, And there it also mentions his sisters, plural. It names four of the brothers. And then it says sisters, plural. So there had to be at least... Four other boys and two girls in this family. So Jesus had at least six half-siblings, natural children born to Joseph and Mary the normal way. They did not believe in Jesus during His ministry. We know His brothers became believers after His resurrection, but we know nothing about the sisters, not even their names, and we don't know if they were included here. I sure would like to think that they followed their brothers to the faith. And as I said, you're going to see there's not just the 11 and the women and Mary and his brothers, 120 people were there. How do we know that? Well, let's move from the personnel to the problem. Chapter uh, chapter 1, verse 15. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, parenthesis, A gathering of about 120 persons was there together and said. So Peter is the spokesman. He he led this meeting of this 120 people. This is the beginning of Peter's apostolic ministry. And for the first 12 chapters of Acts, he is going to be the... The, the main guy. He's going to be the, the de facto leader in the church at Jerusalem. His ministry continued well after that, all the way through wherever he, else he traveled to. I take it that when he says he wrote from Babylon, he was probably in Babylon. I don't know, call me crazy, but I think the Holy Spirit knows which word to, to, to choose. I don't think it was a code word. I think he traveled extensively. And we know that... Um, 
the last, the last thing we know of for sure that he did was write First and Second Peter. And uh, history or uh, tradition tells us he was martyred not long after that. Peter was uh, there as the gospel spread in Jerusalem. Oh, we're going to see that starting the next couple of Sundays. It's glorious. And then to Judea and then to Samaria. Peter was still the main guy in Jerusalem when that happened. And then Peter was the first apostle to deal with a group of Gentiles. That's Acts chapter 10. Then the book of Acts shows the the connection uh, through Peter to the ministry of Paul. And the rest of the book chronicles the ministry primarily to Gentiles, primarily through Paul, but always to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. So, what did Peter say? Verse 16, Brethren, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. Now, here's one of the themes that's going to echo through the Gospel of Luke and into the book of Acts. The Scripture had to be fulfilled. The plan of God unfolds seamlessly, relentlessly from beginning to end. And the connection with the Old Testament is crucial and it's unmistakable. Notice how he says, the Scripture had to be fulfilled. Well, the Scripture is the written Word. Well, the written Word was from the Holy Spirit through the mouth of David. That's that's the connection. God uses people guided by His Spirit to write His Word. And we recognize it as the Scriptures. Men of His choice penned the written Scriptures guided by the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, it would be Peter who would eventually write this, 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, the written Word of God, is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. Men, guided by the Spirit, produced the Word of God under the guidance of the Spirit. So look again. Brethren, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. It's interesting how Peter describes Judas's heinous deed as he became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. You know all about that. We don't need to go there. But it's important to see, and this is a main point here, This was all in the plan of God. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because Christ Jesus our Lord went to the cross and took upon Himself our sins and experienced the full wrath of God against sin so that He could be our Redeemer. He rose again, and when we are identified with His death, His burial, His resurrection, we are trusting in Him and Him him alone, we are saved. But understand, that was all in the plan of God, including the Judas part of it. Even Judas's horrible, horrible, Satan-inspired act 
That was part of God's plan all along, and Jesus knew it. This is one of those situations that leads to the understanding of the phrase that I've said to you many times, God uses sin sinlessly. He is never the author of sin, but His eternal decree includes the sinful deeds of men and women, and those men and women are fully capable for all of their decisions. You're going to see this many times in in Acts. God's sovereignty is absolute. Man's responsibility is absolute. Those two are side by side in Scripture and never let your understanding of one of those overrule the other one. God chooses who will be saved. Well, wait a minute. I read ahead. Peter's going to say, repent and believe and you will be saved. Don't you have to repent? Yes, you do. Didn't you repent when you came to Christ? Yes, you did. Did you do that? Yes, you did. And God chose you specifically by name before the foundation of the world to do that. How do those two fit together? Don't worry about it. They're both true. Don't worry about it. Marvel at it. Rejoice at it. His eternal decree includes working through all of those things, even those sinful actions. Almost as an afterthought, um, Peter confirms that um, Judas wasn't just a, just a magic trick or something. He was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. He was there by the will of God, by the choice of Jesus. His departure was 100% his own responsibility because he never was a believer. Now the next couple of verses are a parenthesis. And this is really interesting. Again, talking about God putting together His His Word. We have information in Matthew 27, verses 3 through 10, where Matthew tells us that after Judas's horrible deed, that he had received 30 pieces of silver for. 30 pieces of silver was the penalty that you would pay under the Old Testament law. For example, if your ox gored the neighbor's slave and the slave died, the penalty was 30 pieces of silver. That's how much Judas regarded Jesus. But after he did that, he was seized with remorse and he returned uh, to the chief priests and elders the 30 pieces of silver that they had paid him out of the temple treasury to betray Jesus. And then Judas went and hanged himself. Now the chief priests decided to use the money to buy a potter's field to become a burial ground for foreigners. So Luke now, here in Acts 1, scrunches that account of Judas after the betrayal a little bit tighter. He portrays Judas as the buyer of the field. Because the chief priests considered their payment to be blood money, it was a a hit they ordered on Jesus, right? They refused to accept it back into the temple treasury. Isn't their righteousness wonderful? Uh, Figure that one out. 
So technically, the silver still belonged to Jesus. So indirectly, Judas's money did buy the field. So now look at verses um, 18 and 19. Now, this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language that field was called Hakaldama, that is, field of blood. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning to get that mental picture in your mind? Well, this is a case of the Bible giving us part of the picture of a scene in one place and more of the picture of that scene in another. Matthew describes part of it, and Matthew is exactly true. Luke describes some of it, and Luke is exactly true. Um, But Luke doesn't mention that Judas hanged himself. He says, but falling headlong, he, you know, well, you get the rest of it. Um, and, he, and he seems to connect it directly with that field. So it might just be that that field was where he killed himself. And there may have been some sort of an outcropping or a huge tree or, or, or you know, some kind of a promontory where he could hang over uh, the edge of a cliff. So, a cliff. so we infer that Judas fell headlong as a result of being suspended in air. The rope either broke under the weight of his falling body, or maybe he threw himself over the edge on the rope, we don't know, or maybe it was cut by someone after he had hung there for who knows how long. It is not at all far-fetched to suspect that his falling body may have hit a sharp rock that caused it to burst open, but trust me, the paramedics did not like the sight when they got there. Now that place was well known in and around Jerusalem at that time and the purpose of the field as a burial place for foreigners who died was well known. Uh, And as I say, it's kind of inferred in the sentence that that may be where, or kind of implied rather, that that may be where Judas died also. So Matthew emphasized the details most important to his Jewish audience. They understood cursed is the one who hangs on a tree. So Judas was accursed. They understood that. How is Luke uh, emphasizes different things for his Gentile audience? So those two accounts complement each other. They harmonize. They don't. They don't contradict. And just like you could, um, we, we could have some sort of a uh, of a big event happen, and you could go look at at uh, three different news sources reporting on television. They're all describing the same scene, but they aren't going to use identical words. And some may emphasize one thing, another may emphasize a different, uh, a different thing. So that's not, that's not a problem in any way. We've met the personnel. We've seen the problem. Wait, Judas is gone. Now a prophecy. Luke wants us to be sure that we understand that this is all the plan of God. He keeps emphasizing that. So he returns to what Peter said that connected the awful story of Judas to the Old Testament. 
Peter is going to cite and apply Scripture to reassure everybody there that day and us, by extension, that Judas's defection and the choice of his replacement were both part of God's purposes. So look at verse 20. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate and let no man dwell in it. In other words, like a field where only dead people would be. Nobody would live there. And let another man take his office. Now that is a, a mashup of two messianic, messianic psalms. The first was from Psalm 69, 25. Both Jesus and Paul quote from that chapter. Jesus quotes from Psalm 69 when he cleared the temple. Paul quotes from Psalm 69 when he applied it to Christ being insulted and ridiculed. Peter quoted from it here because Judas is part of that story. Then Peter applied Psalm 109 verse 8 to make the point that that apostolic place for Judas had to be given to someone else so that the circle of the twelve would be restored. Now I should point, to you, point out to you just for sake of honesty, there is a view that says that this selection of Matthias to replace Judas was wrong, that it was a mistake. The theory is, Jesus said, go back and wait for the Holy Spirit to come. The Holy Spirit hadn't come yet. Therefore, they shouldn't have done this. Well, that's all right until the therefore. It doesn't mean that they couldn't do any. Did he, did he say, go back to Jerusalem and remain comatose until the Holy Spirit comes? No. It seems that they caught on to the idea. There were things for them to be doing, and they wanted to... Uh, they wanted to obey that. And that, that theory goes on to say, well, no, we know this was a, must make a mistake because the 12th apostle is actually Paul who replaced Judas. And Paul was clearly appointed by God. He is number 12. Some good people hold to that theory. And you can get to heaven believing that theory. I just don't think it's right. It is an argument completely from silence. Where does anything in the Bible say it shouldn't have been Matthias? Where does anything say that anywhere in the Bible say they were doing something wrong? They were praying like crazy, searching the scriptures. They were all of one mind. So it was a 120 person delusion? I don't think that that, that, that fits. Um, but it's, it's, not, it's just not stated anywhere. Uh, Paul himself, by the way, distinguished between his ministry and the other apostles. Now, Paul is an apostle, but he's a different one. He's not part of the twelve. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. So it's not a matter of heresy versus orthodoxy, but I think Peter's words here are quite strong in connecting what they did to the Old Testament. And since nothing anywhere in the New Testament cast doubt on that action, I'm not going to say it was wrong. By the way, tradition tells us that Matthias was martyred for the faith along with the other apostles. Now, that doesn't prove he was an apostle any more than making up a theory that he wasn't uh, proves anything. Um, I even think it's a little bit on the reckless side to declare this action to be a mistake since the Bible doesn't say that. Now, if I just stepped on your toes... Excuse me, um, we can certainly get to heaven without agreeing 
on that particular point. And when we're there, Luke, Peter, Paul, and I will be happy to sit down with you and Matthias. I'd really like to hear about his ministry as an apostle. Same with Andrew. Same with Thaddeus. Same with Bartholomew. I'd like to hear all of that stuff. And just to say that because they're not mentioned in the book of Acts, just to say because Matthias is not mentioned in the book of Acts, he's not an apostle, you're only going to have three apostles if you have to be mentioned in the book of Acts specifically for your post-resurrection ministry. All right. Personnel. Problem. Prophecy. We need a plan. Well, the criteria for who could fill this position were quite specific. Look at verses 21 and 22. Therefore, it is necessary. And notice Peter's going to emphasize that. It is necessary. We believe this is necessary based upon what we know from Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. Therefore, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness of the resurrection. There's no indication that anybody was acting on their own here or that Peter manipulated this group. They were already praying and already of one mind when Peter said that. So uh, remember that this is a group working together, apparently in complete unanimity. Now, the replacement had to have been with Jesus and the other disciples all along. Now understand, as you go through Jesus' ministry, it wasn't just Jesus and 12 guys every place that they went. There were dozens, hundreds who followed Him, including the women who, who were with them along that time. There were a lot more disciples beyond the 12 that Jesus named as apostles. Remember, He prayed all night long and the next morning announced who the apostles were going to be. And the same day that He preached the, um, the Sermon on the Mount. It was a huge turning point day in His ministry to name those 12. But we know there were lots more. During his ministry, in one case, he sent out, on one time he sent out 72 others on a mission, just like he had sent out the 12 two by two. So lots more disciples to, uh, to choose from in addition to the 12. So that's the plan. We've got to find somebody that goes all the way back to when John was still around. Now, remember John's ministry overlapped Jesus' ministry, so... It doesn't have to be from day one when John the Baptist introduced Jesus as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, but from right there in those early months, all the time of Jesus' ministry as we know it from the Gospels. So we've got a plan now. We need a proposal. Now, we aren't told just how exactly the process worked, uh, the requirement of having been there all along. That would have eliminated some, likely it would have eliminated most, because we know that that number swelled through his ministry. None of the women could be chosen because the 11 apostles were part of the hierarchy and they didn't want anything to do with uh, anything like a woman. No, that's not that. God's order for spiritual leadership is that it be males. Um, Another factor that would have whittled the number could have been the matter of willingness. Uh, you know, and, uh, it, it's, it wouldn't be a sin 
to not believe that you're a good choice for a special role, even though you really love Jesus and you want to, and you want to serve Him. Like even in the New Testament church, in selecting elders, uh, it, it is a good thing that He desires to do. There has to not only be the choice of God, the spiritual maturity, but also the desire. So that would have whittled it down. We don't know how it worked, but we know somehow among the 120, they came up with a specific proposal, and it's in verse 23. So they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justus, and Matthias. Remember, different languages, same names, or same guy, different languages, Barsabbas is also called Justus. Now, let me tell you everything we know about them. Yeah, just read it. Uh, that, that's what we know about these guys. Um, Joseph's Latin name was Justus. Okay, we can say that's one more thing. Barsabbas, that name, you know, Bar means son of. So he, it could mean that either his father's name was Sabas. That's a possibility. Or it could be that he was born on a Sabbath. And so they called him Sabbath son, son of the, uh, son of the Sabbath. That's all we know. Matthias, what we know about him is uh, there's a longer version of the name, Matathias, which means gift of Yahweh. The other thing we know about them is they were part of the 120, and the 120 believed they were the best candidates for this possibility. Clearly, they wanted to make sure they were not acting on their own. They wanted the decision to be from the hand of God. So the personnel with the problem, acting on the prophecy, developed a plan to put together a proposal, and then came more prayer. This is an appropriate prayer of people who want what God wants. There's no hint that Matthias and Joseph did any campaigning of any kind, nor that they made speeches. There was no black or white smoke involved from a secret group that made the decision. There were no multiple ballots required while the staffs of those two candidates worked out a compromise on their rules of apostleship. No, they turned to God, verses 24 and 25. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, know the hearts of all men. Show us which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. They wanted God's hand on this. They wanted it to be his decision. And by the way, that that final part of that sentence there makes it quite clear this group understood that Judas chose the way of Satan and rejected Jesus. Remember at the Last Supper, Satan then entered into him. They realized Judas had never been the real thing. So the personnel with the problem, following the prophecy, developed a plan, produced a proposal, prayed again, and then the providence. The providence of God in working this out, verse 26. And they drew lots for them. And the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. And the other one went down the street and joined the Presbyterian. They were all of one mind. They were led by the apostles, but 
they, they chose to use, they applied God's word, they prayed diligently, they prayed on one mind, they, they, they prayed again, and then they decided to use the Old Testament custom of casting lots. Now, there's a, it's a process that's mentioned about a half dozen or so times in the Bible. Um, it's basically a black or white, up or down, yay or nay, one or two, binary decision kind of a, kind of a, pro, of a process. Um, and this is how God led them. But notice, they considered and applied Scripture. They prayed diligently. They were of one mind all along on doing the process and on the completion of the process. Their desire above all was to honor God, and they applied rational thinking based on all that they knew. Then they cast lots. Don't don't just haphazardly decide to apply this. Remember I said there's going to be times in, in Acts, being a historical book, you'll read things that are prescriptive. And there are things that are descriptive only. This is descriptive. It describes exactly what happened. It's not prescriptive saying, if you need to make a decision, go cast lots. I mean, you can get up tomorrow morning and you can say, God, I think I'd like a new car. I'm going to cast lots. Is it going to be a Maserati or a Lamborghini? And you flip a coin. Uh, that, would be, that would be twisting everything. These are serious believers seeking Scripture, praying and being of one mind. We know from Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Which stone comes out of the bag or which one you pick out of the pocket or whatever, uh, we're trusting that that is the decision of the Lord. There are different examples in history of different ways it was done, uh, including the the mysterious um, Urim and Thummim that were stones that were part of the gear of the high priest. We don't know exactly how they did it, but we do know that they did it, and we do know they were confident about Matthias. And as it says, and he was added to the 11 apostles. A dear brother in Christ named William Hendrickson wrote a fantastic commentary set on the New Testament. Sadly, he died before he finished, but another dear brother, a good friend of William Hendrickson named Simon Kistemacher, um, finished. And Luke is one of the books that Kistemacher wrote, and he said this, wrapping up this section, Apostleship as such is an intriguing subject. Paul is unable to meet the qualifications for apostleship, yet he becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. Next to Peter... Paul is the prominent apostle in the early church. However, Paul could not have filled Judas's place, for his apostleship is entirely different. The difference between Paul and the twelve is obvious. Paul submits his work to the scrutiny of the apostles. See Galatians 1 and 2. Nevertheless, Paul and the apostles share a common appointment because Jesus Christ himself commissioned them. And now, my friends, the stage is set for the spectacular, dramatic fulfillment of the promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And Lord willing, next Lord's Day, we will again peek in on this group. And we're going to see something unprecedented happen. I jotted down this morning as I was going over my notes and praying, 
And I said, this is a turning point in human history. Well, wait a minute. I said that at the, at the cross. I said that at the resurrection. I said that at the ascension. Well, think of it this way. Like at Christmas, we put a silly little electric train around our, around our Christmas tree. I mean, we want to be biblical, so we go the whole way there. Well, uh, it's not just a circle. It's, it's a little bit of a square, but the, the turns, I have to put together about three or four pieces of curved track to make the curve. So the turning point, this is the curve. The trajectory of history will never be the same after what we're going to see beginning next Lord's Day. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we know what we're going to see next in the book of Acts. Oh, but how we, how we rejoice that we live on this side of that event. Christ is in us. Christ, the hope of glory. It is by His strength. It is by His power. It is in His grace that we can know you and worship you and serve you. So may that be the case for us this week. Please bring us into the company of people who need the Savior and give us wisdom and grace to speak the truth and love of the the gospel of Jesus Christ, the one in whose name we pray. Amen.